electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Two major market stories, the push to new record highs and whether today's Apple event can jumpstart that stock, which is the Dow's worst performer year to date. We'll discuss and debate all of that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Managing Partner, Requisite Capital Management, Surat Sethi, Joe Terranova, John Nigerians. Good to see everybody. Let's check the markets. The Dow briefly trading above a record-closing high. S&P not all that far away. And the Nasdaq dipping barely. Well, now it's positive by about nine points or so. Moves us to our top story now, a big one at that. New reporting from senior economics reporter Steve Leisman on where the Fed really stands on tapering. More importantly, when it could actually start and how. Steve, this is a big deal. It's the question that everybody needs to know. When is the Fed going to start to pull back the support for the economy? And how is it going to message that to the market? Yeah, you're going to have to relax a little bit on this, Scott, as is the market, because the Fed is in the early stages, we found, of a campaign to ready markets for reducing the $120 billion in monthly assets. The Fed looks likely to discuss tapering as soon as the upcoming meeting in June, and depending on how the economy comes out, could be on track to taper later this year or early next year. At least five Fed officials have been publicly commenting on this. They didn't before on the likelihood, by the way, of those discussions in recent weeks, including Patrick Harker of uh, Philadelphia, Robert Kaplan of Dallas, Fed Vice Chair Randy Quarles, and importantly, after the jobs report, Loretta Mester of Cleveland. She made those comments right here on CNBC. So what's the timeline look like? An announcement of a decision to actually taper would be several months later, perhaps in the later um, early fall uh, Fed it would announce a taper. December, January is when the Fed would actually begin to taper early next year. Behind the glacial pace, importantly here, of reducing these asset purchases, a deliberate attempt to avoid a taper tantrum by making it clear to markets. Taper is on a different time path, Scott, and has different criteria from raising interest rates. It's not by accident, in other words, Steve, that you've now had those five no. speakers come out and start to lay the groundwork. Th- this is the calculated strategy by the Fed to avoid another taper tantrum and the mistakes that were made the last time around. Exactly. Just loosening the reins a very little bit to say we are they're telling us they're going to talk about it and then they're going to talk about it. And then they're going to make a decision that they're going to do it sometime down the road. And all of that, Scott, you have this very long runway. And and because the market, I think, is well convinced that tapering is different from raising rates and that raising rates comes after tapering, that at least gives the Fed this eight to nine month of breathing room until the tapering starts before it has to worry about or think about pricing in higher interest rates. And looking at the 10-year, looking at the two-year, looking at Fed funds probabilities, it looks like at the moment 
the market is giving the Fed that leeway for this kind of glacial timeline. Yeah, giving it the benefit of the doubt, at least thus far. Steve, you're going to stay with me. I'm going to bring in the committee and kick this around um, a bit because it is the central question. And, and Joe, you know, how does this sound to you the way Steve has just laid this out? A snail's pace, a deliberate pace, all ultimately getting to the point where the Fed starts to pull back, but not for a while. It sounds very smart. It sounds as if they're going back to 2018 and understanding when you pull back liquidity and economic growth begins to contract as it did during that period because of the tariffs, you're going to create fiscal tightening and you're going to create a problem for the markets. I wonder how much of the monetary policy that we're currently being uh, benefited right now with risk assets is waiting to see what's going to happen with fiscal policy, Scott. Are we going to sit and wait and understand if tightening is going to come from higher taxes? What exactly will the fiscal policy over the next three to six months do to the economic growth? I think that's incredibly important. I think monetary policymakers are being smart to wait and see the result there. The other uh, deal, Steve, is that you're not actually going to get an actual taper until December or January. That's very interesting in terms of, you know, your reporting and the way you uh, understand the way that the Fed is currently thinking. You'll get communication long before that, but you're not going to get a a taper. I was wondering whether we were going to get tapering in the summer. And that doesn't appear to be the case, according to your understanding. Only those shorts of yours, Scott, or perhaps that Hawaiian shirt would get a taper, I guess. Um, But listen, uh, Joe has it right. I think I think what he said is very important because the Fed is going to wait to see the outcomes of fiscal policy before adjusting policy, its own policy. It is not going to preemptively think about, well, fiscal policy is going to do X, Y and Z. So Joe has that exactly right. And and Scott, look, let's be clear. This is outcome-based guidance that we're getting from the Federal Reserve, and they have yet to do what they're going to have to do, which is to convert outcome-based guidance into calendar guidance. So that's sort of the next step they're going to take, is they're going to go from, okay, if this happens in the economy, then we're going to do this soon enough. Maybe as soon as this summer, maybe as soon as early, early fall, they start to put dates on these issues. Yeah, and, and Bryn, an, an important thing is going to be that the, the way the Fed communicates this Something that, frankly, and I think Steve would admit this too, it hasn't always done that in the best way it possibly could. It's going to have to really get it right this time around, Bryn, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. The Fed has over 750 PhDs, but that really doesn't teach you how to communicate effectively. Um, A bunch of smart people. I think that, you know, Steve at the onset, onset said three important words about the market, that at the moment, the market is going along with the Fed in terms of their outcome-based trajectory. My concern is, though, the longer this goes, although it's wonderful we want to see equities and risk, risk assets continue to inflate, at what point does the market start disagreeing with the Fed's trajectory and start pricing in an alternative outcome? Because, as I've said before, there is no playbook for the between the pandemic, the monetary and fiscal stimulus that is upon us right now. And so I think, you know, as investors, you have to be nimble, heavily diversified. 
But I think that this is, you know, a needle in a haystack um, for the Fed. And I think not only the communication, but I think when they start doing it, how the market reacts to that, to me, is what's most important. Based, Doc, on, on this new reporting from Steve, does this tell you it's okay to continue to buy stocks? And you have a, a, maybe a little bit of a, a good runway here between, you know, let's say mid-June and December at the, at the earliest? Yeah, I, I think it does, Scott. And it gives you um, some of that comfort that Joe spoke to on the top as far as that they've uh, really examined 2018, decided they do not want a repeat of that. Um, and so it's as they begin the taper, so they're, they're talking about it, let's say in December, January, they begin a taper, they could stop that taper on a dime. Um, and again, taper's not the same as raising interest rates. It's just they're cutting back on those asset purchases. And if they decide that the market is able to carry um, the debt load, in other words, all these bonds that are offered, and still not see dramatic jumps to the upside during that period, Scott, then I think Steve's exactly right, that we're going to keep working our way forward. Um, and there may be that, that taper may be tapered, at times, depending on how things go, in particular, if they did it in December into the end of the year, yeah. when you tend to get a little pinch in that money hey, supply, Scott, Scott I, as people are adjusting. Well, I was, I, was, I was thinking of Steve, right? John said the magic words, tapering is not tightening. And that is the message that mm -hmm. the Fed is going to go out of its way, I bet, to get across more than anything else, Steve, right? Is, is that, are we on the right path here? They, they, want, they want that... They want that on the front of the New York Stock Exchange when you come in, and they want it on the, on the exit when you come out. They want those, those three words pointed there. John made a really good point that, that I think is, is, is super important to emphasize. Taper is also not ending purchases. If you think about, and I've tried to do this in my head, all right, they're doing 120 bill right now. What do they taper by, 20 or 30 billion? It means, uh, I think 30 would be very aggressive. 20 is more likely. It means for several months, well into 2022, the Fed is still buying asset purchase, huh. assets. And it's not winding down its balance sheet necessarily. So the, the assistance to the economy by the increase of the stock of bonds from the Federal Reserve continues many months into 2022. Okay, so Surat, then that's the perfect environment. Is it, is it not? As long as you don't get runaway inflation, with, with this idea, if rates remain calm, if inflation remains calm, and liquidity is going to be flooding the system still, albeit maybe a little bit less than it was, what's, what's a bad scenario for the investor in that idea? So a bad scenario would be the data coming out is too hot, and all of a sudden inflation is higher, employment numbers are through the roof, yeah, companies are talking about raising prices. And then the other part of it, you know, we're talking about us in the U.S. There's also the rest of the world. And if the rest of the world starts to accelerate faster than we are, then you've got that. Now, I'm not saying this is all going to happen, but these are, the, these are the things that we have to look at as investors to say, we know we're data-driven, we know we're outcome-driven, Fed is going to be working and looking at what um, you know, what's going to go on on the fiscal side, but there are things that could be bumps along the road. Yeah, I just told you. And as an investor, uh, I, hmm. I just laid out the scenario for you. Let's assume yeah. that the worst case of everything you just said doesn't happen because right now the 10 year is, is hanging then, in there. Inflation, right. you know, albeit picking up, is, is not crazy. And the greatest fear that the market had was that the Fed was going to, you know, land the plane rough. 
and it was not going to be uh, an easily acceptable deal. The Fed, as Steve's reporting tells us now, is going to go above and beyond and has already, in fact, started to lay the groundwork in baby steps, getting the market to understand this is not going to be abrupt. It's not going to be all of it. And we're going to do whatever we have to do to keep the expansion going and to keep asset prices from absolutely collapsing. They don't want to see a, a collapse in asset prices by any stretch. No, nobody does. And what you're describing would be a Goldilocks scenario, Scott. It would be mm-hmm. asset pricing that would be going up in a methodology that is straight and consistent. So you would have stocks like technology would do really well. Financials would do really well. You would have companies that have secular growth doing really well. And I think that's where, you know, holding stocks in a diversified portfolio, you know, as Bryn said, this is not a playbook we've ever seen, but the market will and continue to do well if that scenario that you've described holds up. Well, Joe, then what Surat's saying, if tech is going to do well and financials are going to do well, then almost everything else is going to do well. Because you're going to get growth doing well and you're going to get cyclicals doing well. And what's wrong with that picture? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce the word that you don't like when I introduce, but it's dispersion. And we finally have dispersion in the market. So, yes, I think uh, the broad construct of equities are going to do well. I'm not sure if everything on the fixed income side will do well also. But I think we need to compliment the Fed. I think we need to compliment Treasury Secretary Yellen, who's doing a great job communicating almost on behalf of the Fed what the policy might be. And, Scott, you asked what the biggest fear might be. What if the biggest fear is that the economic growth that we're experiencing now hits the wall and it just stops and fades away and it does so at a time where the Fed is tapering? Well, okay, if they're tapering, they could always reintroduce, pause the tapering or go back and buy some more. But the biggest concern is the sustainability of this economic growth. We don't want the 84-85 experience where you got 7%, 4% that went back to trend. You want to be able to see above-trend economic growth for multiple years. That's the big fear to me. All right. Our headliner today, let's bring him in to react to all of this. Steve, I'm going to come back to you in just just a second. I want to bring in our headline guest. He manages $2.6 trillion as the CIO of BlackRock's global fixed income. He's also the head of the global allocation team, Rick Reeder is back with us and how timely it is to have you with us, Rick. I hope you heard Steve's new reporting and the way that we discussed around it. You've made the argument on this program and elsewhere that the Fed's doing too much, that it needs to pull back. Does the timeline and the mechanism and the message and and the way that they're going to deliver that feel okay to you? Yeah, I mean, by the way, I think Steve described it exactly right. I mean, it's going to well into 2022, they're going to be buying assets. This is not like the Fed is tightening policy. I mean, 2018 policy was too tight and uh, they needed to pull back. They need to make it a bit easier. This is we're, we're operating at the same conditions we were operating in before vaccine, i.e. the Fed. The Fed can pull this back. I mean, there are some parts of the market. Fed's buying 40 billion a month of agency mortgages. Agency mortgages trade at negative 40 basis points spread, meaning extraordinarily low real rates. We don't need to keep doing that. And and uh, and quite frankly, I think Steve described it right. There's nobody in fixed income who doesn't know this is coming. There's nobody. In, by the way, there's nobody in the markets who doesn't know this is coming. And it's just not that scary. I mean, I, you know, we, we go back to other periods in time when the Fed tapered and maybe it was a bit disruptive in terms of the way they did it. This Fed has seen the playbook, knows the playbook, and it's just not it's just not that scary at all. And I, however, I actually think it's a bigger risk that they don't start tapering 
Because you think about what's driving, what concerns investors and what concerns corporate CEOs, CFOs today, overheating, wage pressures accelerating too far, input costs accelerating too much. Listen, we could pull back a little bit with excessive emergency conditions and the markets will be just fine. So on, on, on what the markets are going to do, you were with us last month. You told us you were holding on to, quote, high levels of cash. OK, so Leesman's telling us there's not going to be a taper until December or January. Are you still holding on to high levels of cash? Or are you now feeling more free to put some of that to work? So, I mean, there's one, when you think about what cash does for you. By the way, I was looking at this, you know, at the last payroll report. The S&P 500 was, at four, was after the fours, I think, 42.32. We're sitting at 42.09 or 42.10 today. So it's not like the market's running, running away from us. The market's waffling around. Cash is a really interesting asset today because you think about what is mispriced in the market. Treasuries are mispriced. Agency mortgages are mispriced. We've kicked those assets, for the most part, out the door. Why own them? All they're going to do when rates move higher, those are going to hurt us. I'd rather take my risk in equities. And so we're running cash because we've kicked those assets out the door. The other, the other thing that has been a godsend in an environment where it's hard to hedge your risk, treasuries don't hedge your risk, volatility has come down tremendously. We were able to do last week a couple of times buy call options on the S&P 500 at 10 vol. I mean, when you, when you can, it doesn't make sense to, to, to hold a lot of outright equity exposure when volatility is that low. You can use convexity. You can use the call option market and create the same sort of upside convexity to your, sorry, great, greater upside convexity. So cash just allows you to be opportunistic and allows you to take advantage of, uh, of opportunities that present themselves. And, and it doesn't mean you don't have to be in the market. We are in the market. We are long equities. We're just not long the other stuff that does nothing for the portfolio today. Understood. I mean, that'll be a good quote that comes out of this. I'd rather take my risk um, in, in equities. And as I turn back to the gang, along with Leesman, let me also let you know, um, his full write-through is on CNBC.com, which I urge you to go read. It flushes this out. Um, even further gives you a clear understanding as to what the Fed, according to his own reporting, is thinking right now about their message and their methodology about when they're actually going to do this. Steve, forgive me for cutting you off earlier as I wanted to bring Rick in, but let me come back to you. Yeah, no, better to bring Rick in. I was just going to underscore the uh, uh, concern that both Surratt and Rick have now said, look, you can't go and run the same uh, uh, pass play again and expect the same exact outcome, even if you execute it better. So the circumstances are different. There's a different risk in the market, and that risk is inflation. And the real risk here, I think, is maybe not the one that we're looking at, which is does the bond market freak out? Rick is the bond market. He's already told us he's not freaking. So we're good with that. The other issue, though, which is the idea that the Fed has this glacial pace uh, and, and, and avo- tries to avoid a taper tantrum at the risk of allowing inflation to fester and to happen in, 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 a, in a way that becomes more permanent than it is the current Fed's current idea, which is that it's temporary. So that is the risk we want to watch out for. And then the question is, what is the upside on things like the 10-year in those cases that, that you need to be careful of where you can get burned in your fixed income portfolio? I wanted to turn to, to Dr. J. Doc, can you still hear me okay? I'm, I'm looking at you in the screen. and I'm not, Can you hear me? Uh, I, can't, I don't think Dr. J um, can hear me. I'm going to come back to him I- I- in a moment. But, Bryn, you know, what do you make of the way that, that Rick Reeder is, is thinking about where he's putting his money to work right now, either, you know, through this options trading in, in the S&P 500, looking at what he has termed boring 
type stocks, not these, you know, sexy ones in the marquee with the mega, you know, these, these uh, high growth names that we've been talking about a lot. But just going back to the tried and true names that are going to represent themselves well in this kind of environment. Yeah, I would, we, would, we would agree. I mean, I don't think our portfolio on the equity side has ever been this diversified across so many different sectors from whether it's technology, financials, industrials, small cap value, you know, crypto, what have you. Because I still believe, though, that the Fed doesn't have a that We haven't seen the magnitude of the, the playbook. And so we want to be really diversified. You know, in our fixed income, the little that we have is an ultra, ultra short. So it's basically cash. So I would totally agree with that. I do have a question, though. For, for, for Rick or Steve, is that as we look forward on trying to read the tea leaves of whether inflation is transitory or not, what I keep looking at is the velocity of money and the lack of, and for the viewers, you know, the velocity of money is how quickly the money changes over in the economy. And you would think with all of the stimulus from both sides, that velocity of money would be much higher. And so when you look forward, do you look at that as a data point? And we'd love to get your thoughts on, 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 how, that, on how that moves going forward and what the impact would be. Rick Reeder, why don't you take that first? Sure, that's a great question. So, so I said a couple of things. First of all, I do think it's the Fed's right and that it's largely transitory. You take most of what's driven this spike in inflation, the spike of inflation, CPI, core, core PCE. It's been the reopening. Obviously, we know what's happening with semiconductors. But if you look at whether it's lodging or used cars or airfares, it's the reopening that's created this explosive inflation. The one place that I think that you're going to have durable inflation, that's shelter. House prices are there's not enough houses in the market today. So I do think you're going to get some durable inflation with regard to uh, with regard yep. to housing. Everything else, I think, will come down. That being said, is an yeah, important point reason, that Bryn makes. I I think the disinflationary conditions we've seen over the last couple of years or last, I should say, last 10 or so years, I think that's been wrung out. And I do think you will see a higher level of velocity. And so I think the Fed, part of why the Fed can feel comfortable is I think inflationary expectations are in a good place. And I do think velocity will be more durable than it's been in the past. I think Bryn is right on that. Rick, um, it was I believe it was Surratt who earlier suggested that you know, tech can do well in, in this kind of environment and the financials can do well in this environment. That tells me a lot because it says that a broad swath of those types of names can, can do well. Do you, how selective do you have to be based on Leisman's reporting and the, and the mm. discussions and the way that you're thinking about the market? So listen, when, let's say when the Fed does taper and this, this thing happens, which I say is not that scary, rates aren't going that much higher. I mean, the demand for yield in this demographic, in the, in the amount of whether pension funds, insurance companies, rates aren't going that much higher. Is the 10-year going to go up 30, 40 basis points? I think so. It's just not, it's not that. So, so I think the point about can tech perform, absolutely. So it, you know, it'll take a little bit of adjustment and people say, oh, gosh, rates are going higher. What does this mean? They're not going that much higher. And so, yes, I do think that's right. You know, I, the places that I think one would be careful today is in you know some of the consumer staples that have higher input costs that are that are you know not that interesting utilities that are that are obviously interest rate sensitive but otherwise i actually think i actually think tech can work and i think financials work i actually i hope that's right because we we're we're long both and in, uh, in different in, di in, di in different forms it's a stuff that I think is directly interest rate or inflation um, related, like that, that has higher input costs that we're, we're being careful about. I, I got you. I think we're back with uh, Dr. Jay's back with us. And I know he wanted to react, John, you did to, to Rick's options trade mm -hmm. um, in the S&P. Tell me what yeah. you think about the way that he's approaching all this. Well, you know, 
I, I don't think a guy like me can ever uh, tell a guy who's managing $2.6 trillion very much, Scott. But uh, my, my curiosity was, Rick, uh, exactly uh, how far out are these options? You say you're about 67% in equity and you're getting additional exposure from those options and that convexity. I applaud you for it, sir. Um, but uh, are these just into Jackson Hole or are these options that extend all the way to the end of 2021? How far out are these options? <laughs> That's a great question. It's a great question. Not to get too technical, but they tend to be one to okay. two month options where that vol is is reasonable and then we roll it and you know the nice thing when volatility is that low you know we don't we don't just set it and forget it you know we're in the markets trading so you think about i think i last after we were last on the show markets traded down a fair amount and you know the nice thing about having that convexity in the book and with volatility this low you can you can trade it and offset those costs you know we uh, i don't get into some of the technical greeks around uh, around theta mm -hmm. or, or you know where your where your cost of having these options on it when it's that low you can trade the market around and offset any cost to it and then and then have some exposure um, to the equity market moving higher. So anyway, it's great when vol comes down. It makes it a whole lot easier in an environment where you don't have a lot of other hedges. It makes it a whole lot easier to manage a portfolio. No, you say, uh, you know, particularly when the markets are moving around a lot, it gives you some uh, some ability to, to trade it. We're going we're gonna to bounce in a couple of minutes. But Joe Terranova, I know, has something. And then, Steve, I'm going to give you the last word because that's where we started with you. But, Joe, go ahead. Rick, so certainly we've seen an increase in speculation and excessive leverage. I'll let you pick the, the area of the market, traditional or not, where you could find that. But do you think the tapering and the removal of some liquidity will temper some of that speculation that currently is going on? Joe, I mean, I think the, the, I think the, the, uh, the shadow banking, you know, the way it's, it's broadly defined, I think it's hard to see. And, uh, but, it but, you know, where we see a lot of the high-quality assets trading today, they're trading too rich. I mean, everybody sees what happens to some of the speculative stocks. But some of the really high-quality assets, when the Fed does creates this crowding out by buying agency mortgage treasuries, there's a huge amount of money that needs to hold safe, fixed income. So what happens is you just get this incredible overinvestment. And I think people underestimate when the safe assets are that rich, it allows financing down the caps, capital structure. And it, it creates this is part of why I press it on the tapering, because I don't think it makes the difference really in terms of the markets. But if you start paring back some of the excessive liquidity, then you create some normalization of financial conditions, which I think is really important. It's the it's the overheating of financial conditions being uh, too easy that creates some of these anomalies we've seen in the past that can that can be dangerous. Well, and, and on that note, Steve, as I, as I turn to you for the last word, the Fed has to take great comfort, I would bet, in the way that some of these you know, so-called overheated parts of the market have self-corrected. The SPAC market is not what it was. The NFT market is not what yeah. it was. A lot of the most high-flying yeah. yep. and exuberant parts mm. of the market have come back. And you know they love that because they don't have to be the ones to do it. Right. The Fed loves it when steam comes out of the market in a controlled way, especially when it's in the process of trying to do this. But just very quickly as the last word, um, if you put that timeline up, I think I would look at the months on the left as the more, <clears throat> pardon me, aggressive Fed, the months on the right as the less aggressive Fed. And only something like, Scott, where you were asking me before, you thought it was going to happen this summer. 
Well, that's a big change, but it's going to be plus or minus a month or two in there either way. If, if we start doing two million jobs a month every month until the fall, well, things will change a little bit more, a little bit faster. But right now, I think that w- what Rick was saying, what I'm saying, what I think the market believes is we're on this steady pace for a taper announcement sometime in the fall. And it can't get a whole lot more aggressive than that. Yeah, I because, I, look, I remember, you know, from this past Friday when the jobs report came out, I think Surratt was on, on Squawk. And as it, the number came out, you know, 550 or, or, or whatever it was, obviously below expectations and a far cry from two million jobs per month. He termed it a Goldilocks number then. And that ultimately turns into the kind of conversation we're having now as to whether it is a Goldilocks market, yeah. at least until the Fed mm-hmm. makes its first move. Yeah. Rick Reeder. My great thanks to you, Steve Leisman. Awesome stuff. Always good to have you on. We'll be back with the gang in just a moment because we need to discuss the investment committee's latest moves. Plus, Apple is kicking off its developers conference in the next hour. There's a lot riding on it, too. Maybe more than usual because of what the stock hasn't done lately. We'll debate that. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. More than 2.3 million households have signed up for temporary broadband subsidies. Congress created the $3.2 billion program in December. Some broadband providers say that the plan has enough money for four to six months. Two people have been arrested in connection with that road rage, road rage shooting that left a six-year-old dead in California. Aiden Leos was on his way to kindergarten when authorities say a person fired into the car his mother was driving. Tonight on the news, what led law enforcement to the suspects? Plus, more details on the case, which are expected later this afternoon. And in New York, a free concert for 60,000 people expected in August to celebrate reopening the city. Mayor de Blasio says that it will be part of a homecoming week of big events. A citywide celebration of New York City. A citywide moment to declare that New York City is back. A homecoming for New York City where New Yorkers come out together to celebrate and support our city, where folks from all over the metropolitan region come back to their roots in the city to support New York City's comeback. Should be a good time, and don't we deserve it. Scott, I'll send it back to you. Sounds good to me. Rahel, thank you very much. Rahel Solomon. All right, let's talk about those moves the committee is making right now. Joe Terranova, you got a real interesting one, man, and that's where I want to start. You bought CrowdStrike. I did, Scott. So I have not really owned these type of uh, names, hypergrowth, since January. I moved away from them. I think the time is now for a trade to begin to step back in again. Last week, I bought Fortinet. That's a focus on cybersecurity. CrowdStrike gives me the same thing. You have a series of higher lows in CrowdStrike in March and May. I think that stock has recovered. And very gently, I'm going to lean back into some of these hypergrowth trades. I think there's an opportunity short term. You sold KKR for any specific reason as you look through the you know, few handfuls of names that you actually keep as to why that one popped up? I have, I have Blackstone. Blackstone is performing uh, better than KKR. I needed to remove something. I'm fully invested to add CrowdStrike. 
Uh, and unfortunately for KKR, that was removed from the portfolio. Okay. Or maybe uh, fortunately for KKR. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll see. Uh, Bryn, <laughs> Lit, L-I-T, is a new buy for you. Tell us why. So as you know, I like energy stocks. I'm a believer in fossil fuels long term. That being said, we wanted to add some lithium exposure to our portfolio. And as you know, we talk about GM, Ford, Tesla, Volkswagen on the show all the time. Well, I thought the best way to get exposure across the board was to buy LIT, which actually invests not only in mining, but in the end, end battery production as well. And so you get companies like an Albemarle, but you also have a company like um, Panasonic and then Tesla as well. And so I thought it'd be a really good exposure longer term to have a commodity exposure into that electric vehicles without having to make a bet on whether it's Ford, you know, Ford, Volkswagen or GM. But in buying that basket of that lithium that you need to make all of those all of those cars coming soon to a theater near us. You know, I haven't even discussed with you because I don't think you were, were on. And I'm curious your view down in Houston about that engine number one winning the three now three board seats for Exxon. As a believer as you are in fossil fuels, I'm wondering how you view those stocks now moving forward and what the chatter is down in the Houston area about whether they're more investable today than they were yesterday because of this new ESG angle that's going to creep its way into the boardrooms of many of these companies. And this was just the start. I think that the we, we need, I think the Colonial Pipeline taught us, I mean, reminded everybody, we need a strong oil infrastructure in the United States. It's like our most, one of our most important assets that we have here. And so I think, though, that these board changes are very healthy to have this lens looking forward that, listen, greener energy is coming and these companies can be part of the story. And I will say, Scott, these companies that are left, not only the big diversified energy companies like Chevron and Exxon, but the infrastructure plays like the One Oak or a Kinder Morgan, They've made it through the darkest days, and I think these are lean, mean companies that more and more people will see are investable, and you get great dividend yield as well. All right. It's great to get your perspective on that. We're going to get Surat's perspective on Apple and its big event, which is coming up in less than an hour. Plus, Bitcoin is coming off its second worst monthly drop ever, but it didn't stop the party at the world's largest crypto conference over the weekend. Up next, we'll talk about the potential for Bitcoin ETFs. Do it next. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. 
Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Huge Bitcoin conference in Miami this weekend. Let's get some thoughts from Greg King, CEO of Osprey Funds, which runs the Osprey Bitcoin Trust. And Michael Sonnenshine, he's the CEO of Grayscale Investments, which runs Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Greg, you're still in Miami. I saw a lot of attacks on the Federal Reserve. I saw people attacking Elon Musk, strange bedfellows. I saw people saying crypto is going to take over the monetary system. And I saw the president of El Salvador saying he wants Bitcoin to be legal tender. What's your takeaway on the conference? What's the key, key meme here? Yeah. What's all, going kinds, on? all kinds of things happening here in uh, Miami. I, I would characterize it as a sense of excitement. It feels a lot like 2017 felt, but with a broader base. You do have an international hub here of investors. Um, and so the announcement from El Salvador was very interesting. I think it was uh, enthusiastic and well-received by the crowd. So uh, in general, Things seem uh, to be still feeling very bullish here in Miami for Bitcoin going forward and the broader crypto world. Yeah. You know, Michael, uh, Bitcoin seems range bound. I know it's still in a in a bull market, it's still in an up market overall here. It seems like alternative investments are what everybody's talking about right now, from NFTs to decentralized finance. Is Bitcoin waning as the dominant story in crypto, do you think? I wouldn't say it's waning. I think that investors appreciate Bitcoin has to be part of their allocation. So there's now a trend towards not only diversification to have crypto exposure, but also diversification within your crypto exposure itself. And so investors have been looking at other cryptocurrencies which serve other use cases and are adding them to their portfolios. When you get the president of El Salvador saying, I'm going to make Bitcoin legal tender, the dollar's already legal tender over sure. there. I mean, that's, a, that's at least a moment here. Something here is happening. It is certainly a moment. But I think that if you zoom out and you look at the bigger picture, it's important to remember that, you know, from our view of the world, as institutional adoption can, you know, continues to take place, we would not be surprised to see states and, you know, central banks beginning to think about adding Bitcoin and other crypto to their balance sheet. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Much more on Bitcoin and the future of a Bitcoin ETF with Michael and Greg on ETF Edge, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, ETFEdge.cnbc.com. Halftime, back in two minutes. Apple kicking off its worldwide developers conference just a few moments. We're less than 15 minutes away from that. All right, Surat, got to talk to you about this one, okay? Stock's down 5.5% year to date. I know that you own it, okay? And people look at WWDC and say, yeah, it's not really a stock-moving event. And they're right. I mean, historically, it has not been. However, as Katie Huberty of Morgan Stanley writes, in the last two years, Apple stock performance following WWDC has been more pronounced, outperforming the S&P 500. Now, is this going to be the catalyst or at least one of the major ones to get the stock working again? Because it's done next to nothing. I think it's very important, Scott, because they have to reconfirm, reiterate how important they are to the whole technology ecosystem. And I think they're going to do it. Uh, Their products coming out will be, you know, again, newer. The operating systems will be upgraded. And I think people will understand more and more as we come out of the stay at home 
how important the whole Apple ecosystem is to everybody, not just people at home, but also the professional side as well. So uh, I think people will be watching to see what they're coming out with, what products are innovative, and, and what actually we're going to be using over and over again. It's that annuity stream that's going to push this stock higher, I think. Doc, what, what's, what's been eating Apple? I mean, really, it's been a sideways trade at best to slightly down. Are you optimistic that it's yep. about to get moving again, or what's the problem? Yeah, I am, Scott. Um, and it's, it's the same thing that we've talked about with many of the stocks, in particular in tech, that had that, um, you know, that pull forward of demand. Uh, and Apple clearly a big beneficiary, as was Dell, as was Hewlett-Packard, and Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, for that matter. I mean, people bought all of these because they needed more uh, for their home offices and so forth. So I, I think that's a little bit of the drag here, Scott. But I agree with Katie Huberty and, of course, Surratt. Uh, I don't see huge upside from here, Scott. We're seeing 126 calls, 127, about up to the 129 level being bought throughout the day. And that kind of tells you that uh, people are looking for little baby steps um, and stabilization continuing in Apple, not for a big jump. Yeah, Joe, I mean, you're, you're not looking for anything great either. As I, as I turn to you and I'm looking at my fact set and I, and I punch it up, you, you think it's still going to underperform? So it's sitting at 125 as we're having this conversation. Correct. You think it's going to continue to disappoint for the remainder of the year? I do. I think it underperforms for the entirety of the year relative to the cyclicals. Energy's up 46%. Financials are up 30%. Apple peaked in January. There was a tremendous amount of pull forward in terms of demand and in terms of price performance. I just think it's the type of year... I'm, I'm an investor in Apple. I'm going to stay with Apple, but I don't expect Apple to be one of the leading stocks this year. But then does it give you a chance if you if I mean, there's got to be somebody who doesn't own it um, or wants to add more to <laughs> it. Do you be. do it here at 125 and then wait for the bounce into next year? Um, I think, you know, Apple is in a position where if there's any type of further correction, there's a strong enough buyback program that's in place that will support the stock. So I think you're okay buying it here at 125. I just don't expect that you're going to see 150, 155, 160 in the next couple of months. You could buy it at 125. That's probably going to be 125, 130, 135, or 120, right where it is now, three to six months from now. Wow. Yeah, range bound. We'll see. Uh, up next, John's latest trades in unusual activity. We're back right after this. We'll answer your questions now. First up, a turn to Bryn. All right, Bryn, first question for you. Boris in Bulgaria. J.P. Morgan, I'm looking for an entry point in J.E.P. Oh, sorry, it's the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income. Is now a good time to be a long-term uh, investor for a dividend portfolio? Hey, Boris from Bulgaria. Um, yes, we're our investors in JEPI. And we are long-term investors. We add it to portfolios all the time. It's a great way to get 80 diversified names. It's selling calls, so we're collecting that premium, plus dividend. So it's a great long-term, high-quality investment. Evergreen, evergreen ETF. Okay. Sarada, so I have a video question for you. Let's watch. Hi, my name is John, and I live in Glastonbury, Connecticut. My question is on Logitech, which is up 51% over the last six months. What do you forecast for Logitech in the back half of 2021? Thank you. All right. Sarat, what's the answer? 
great company. You know, it's actually up 130 percent in a year. Uh, I think you have to be very careful here. They're going to be lapping comps. This was a classic stay-at-home play where everybody was upgrading their videos, their cameras, their mouses. Um, I think comps are going to be really hard to come by. I think margin pressure will be there as well. So I take a little money off the table and uh, have a better re-entry point. Okay. Joe, turn to you for the last one. RJ in New York writing about Schwab at 28.50. It went up to 72.70. What do I do now? Do I sell it and put the money somewhere else? What do you think? Well, if he boarded at 28, he was probably listening to our good friend from the 516 TRB because that's where Josh was in at. I was in this stock later. I'm still in it now. I want you to stay in this stock. This is all about the management and growth of assets. There's a tremendous amount of capital that continues to go towards risk assets, and Schwab is one of the best at managing them. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, everybody. Come back real quick after this with John's Unusual Activity. That's next. Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast. Market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app and subscribe to the Halftime Pod today. All right, let's do unusual activity. Dr. J, what do you have? All right, Brinker International, Scott, symbol EAT. Uh, because that's what they do. They feed us and we eat. Uh, this one, they're looking to feast, in fact, Scott, because the stock's $59. They're buying the 65 calls that expire next week, regular June expiration. I'll probably be in that trade for a, most of the next week, maybe 10 days, Scott. Second trade um, is Skills. This is a Kathy Wood stock, SKLZ. Uh, she's been out championing this one. This is weekly this week, calls with the stock at $20.77. They're buying the June 24 uh, strike calls that expire this Friday, Scott. So I'll probably be in this one anywhere from two to three days. Like both of them, they're both projecting pretty good upside moves to get paid on these two, Scott. All right. Good stuff, Doc. Thank you. We'll take another quick break. We'll come back with final trades next. All right, it's time now for final trades. Joe Terranova, you are up. Well, maybe I'm looking in the camera. Where are we looking? There? All right, we'll look right there. Joe, (laughs) you want to talk about the IBB? I do. Let's talk a little biotech. Broke down below 160 back in February. For three months, it's been struggling to get above. You look at the chart, it's breaking out above today. A lot of strong news as it relates to biotech. IBB, I think you buy this breakout for a return to the February highs. Yeah, and speaking of, you know, we're still waiting, Doc, for shares of Biogen to reopen really after this historic approval of its Alzheimer's drug, the first one approved in nearly 20 years. You have calls in Biogen. Again, the stock has not reopened for trade yet. Um, It's going to be a mover. We know that because this was really um, a watershed moment today, Doc. Yeah, and it's an answer to a lot of prayers, Scott. And I don't just mean from stock investors, of course. I mean from the folks afflicted with this. Um, So this is great news. Uh, There was speculation, Scott, all the way up to about the 350 strike. And that started a couple weeks ago. They 320, 330, 350. Um, I think we see those kind of numbers after uh, the stock resumes trading. You want to just give me a quick name for final trade? Sure. Zoom, uh, the video conferencing service. ZM. I bought calls in that during the show. Okay. Oh, during the show. Okay. It's a nice move today, too. Surat? Mm -hmm. 
I like Uber. A great reopening play. Okay. Bryn, lastly to you. Energy infrastructure, MLPX. Diversified basket of MLPs. Okay. Keep our eye on the market today, too. Remember, the Dow did uh, briefly trade above its closing uh, high. Uh, it's down about 150 right now. That does it for us. I'll send it over to the exchange, which begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.